please take your Bible if you have one. It's not listed in your bulletin. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and we will be reading and studying together verses 1 through 18. You can find that on page 1006 of our CART Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and before we read this word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord of mercy and grace, of covenant steadfast love, we come to you, the one who gave up your Son for us, your only and beloved Son, that you should bring us to yourself. And he should go and prepare a place for us that where he is, there may we be also. We thank you for the passion of which we have heard this evening, of Christ's willingness to die for the sake of his people. And as we hear now a word of interpretation from the Hebrews as to what exactly was happening in that death and, and in that one sacrifice for all time, We pray that you would cause us to draw near to you in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water, that we should be your people. Oh, stir us up to love and to good works because of the words that we have heard and sung and prayed together tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Every four years at a festival in India, that festival becomes the largest gathering of human beings anywhere in the world. It's called the Kumbh Mela, otherwise known as the Pitcher Fair. According to Hindu tradition, uh, the Kumbh Mela commemorates a war that took place uh, between the ancient gods and the ancient demons, and the gods and the demons were fighting over a divine celestial nectar kept in the heavens and kept safe in a giant pitcher. In the course of the battle, four drops of this nectar fell to the earth in strategic places in India's rivers. And during the festival, the faithful are promised that a bath in any of these spots where the nectar has fallen will wash away all of their sins. And even by conservative estimates, people tell us that every four years, more than 10 million people gather to have their sins washed away at strategic spots where the nectar has fallen into the Ganges and to the other rivers. Perhaps also this week you saw news outlets around the world who were abuzz with pictures and stories of the accounts of the Scala Sancta in Rome. I've used this as an illustration before. I was reminded on the way here. Uh, but uh, perhaps you saw it as well uh, as your news feed was lighting up with these things. The Scala Sancta, uh, Ro- uh, Italian for the Holy Stairs, are 28 white marble steps at the Vatican, said to be taken from the Roman outpost in Jerusalem, the very place, they say, uh, where Jesus stood bloodied and bound before Pilate. And the story goes that they were moved piece by piece to Rome in the 4th century, and they were set up in their original order, and they still bear the splatters of Jesus' holy blood. The reason they were in the news is that for the last 300 years, they've been under protective cover, uh, marble covered in uh, walnut wood, uh, and it's to protect them from the, uh, the pilgrims who come to Rome every year to ascend the staircase on their knees. Recently, that walnut has been removed for a restoration project, and so now you can go and ascend this staircase on marble on your knees, and you are told by a plaque that bears the pontifical seal at the bottom of the steps that if you ascend this staircase during any Friday in Lent and make it all the way to the top, you will receive a plenary indulgence, a partial remission of sins. You may apply those uh, indulgences to yourself or to any of your loved ones who are, who are in purgatory and waiting to be taken out of purgatory and into the presence of God, and every year more than a half a million pilgrims kneel their way up these steps for partial remission of sins. We could multiply examples many times over. Man-made religion has no shortage of inventive ways to alleviate the guilt and the shame that comes as a result of sin. And yes, it's true that today the scoffers would laugh it all away. The very idea of sin, not to mention the many manifold ways that human beings have contrived of getting rid of it over the years, the very idea of sin as seen is also primitive and also ignorant and also ridiculous. And yet, this wide-ranging reality is that in every human culture, in practically every time, the burning question has always been, How can I deal with my failure to live up to the perfection I know I was made for? It is empirical proof 
of Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 that God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so mankind is without excuse, even though by our unrighteousness we may want to suppress the truth of all these things. For the vast majority of cultures, this, uh, this attempt to deal with sin was a blind step into the darkness. Priests and shaman and gurus and healers suggest pilgrimages and sacrifices and ordinances and ritual and child sacrifice and animal sacrifice and feasts and famines and fasting and self-deprivation or self-indulgence and the whole horrible mess is a human attempt at that all-important question, what can I do to get rid of my sin? Well, into this mess, the Old Testament law was a light shining in a dark place. It was revelation. It was wisdom into this whole morass of magic and manipulation, and the God of creation showed up. He showed up in time and space and in power and in glory, and he showed up with his righteous right arm bared against the oppressor, and he drew his people out of the land of slavery and brought them to himself upon his mountain. And the God of Sinai thundered and spoke. He spoke a message of grace and mercy. And at the same time, a warning that no one ought to get too close. And there we have it. Divine confirmation that sin is the great separator. That those who are covered in the filth of iniquity cannot draw near. That is the burning question in Hebrews. How do I draw near? But those covered in the filth of iniquity cannot draw near to the God of perfection. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And if he should mark iniquities, who can stand? And so the Lord of Sinai established a system. It was a perpetual cycle of priests and sacrifices, and it happened inside a tabernacle where the holiness of God was separated by curtains and ceremonies from the people gathered out in the courtyards. And the people would come. Year after year on the Day of Atonement they would come, and day after day at morning and in evening they would come, and the priest would pray, and the blood was spattered, and the incense and the fire ascended to heaven, and yet the people remained outside. There were no idols to kiss or chambers to enter. There was only a burning altar and a wall of separation and a single priest who entered in just once a year and he went in with bells on his hem and a rope around his ankle in case his lifeless body needed to be dragged out from the presence of the all-consuming God of holiness. It was a reminder, says Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, this system was never intended to be a remedy. It was a reminder. In these sacrifices, it says, there is a reminder of sin every year. It was a reminder of sin's reality. It was a reminder of sin's terrible consequences. Separation from God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not too dull that he cannot hear, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That was the point of the sacrificial system. 
The Mosaic sacrifices were never a remedy. They weren't some cosmic fragrance to entice the Lord to turn his nose away from the putrid stench of sin. That's how the pagans worshipped. That's what they thought. It was one sacrifice after another sacrifice offered to gods who could not feel and could not taste and could not speak and could not touch. And they imagined, convinced themselves that their offerings and rituals would take the place of righteousness and that by their devotion they could erase the stains of the sins of the past, but not so in Israel. It was never meant to be that in Israel. Consider verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consider verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Consider verse 1. The law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, and it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the problem. Where sin remains, separation continues. And imperfect worshipers with hands and hearts full of sin cannot draw near. They're not perfected. They can't come into the Holy of Holies where the Lord of hosts dwells. They can't come close to where He is. There continues a separation. They can't approach the throne of God. They can't come close to His presence. They can't hope to receive His mercy. And so the curtain stands and the Holy of Holies remained unapproachable. The law served year by year and day by day as a reminder of its own powerlessness to bring humanity near to God. But the law was also a shadow. The law was a reminder, and the law was a shadow. As the light of God's mercy shone down upon Israel, the law was a figure pointing to something much more substantial than itself, someone much more substantial than itself. And all those ceremonies and all those priests and all those bleeding lambs and dying goats pointed beyond themselves to a perfect sacrifice that was to come. Someone who would stand in the gap. Someone who would tear down the curtain. Someone who would bridge the chasm between humanity and holiness. And even in the Old Testament times, that message was audible for those who had ears to hear. Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what the Lord was looking for? Is that what the God of creation is pleased with? The God who laid the mountains and their foundations, is He after your possessions and the things that you can offer or was the Lord after holiness and righteousness? Verse 8 in Micah, you know what it says. He has told you, O man, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God and a hundred other verses in the Old Testament just like Micah telling you that the Lord does not delight in sacrifices but to obey is better than sacrifice and that's the problem. It's the grand celestial catch-22 that the thing that God wants is just what humanity doesn't have. 
the only offering we cannot possibly give. What does God delight in? He delights in absolute righteousness. Perfect obedience, the kind of sinless perfection that mirrors God's character. God who created us upright at the beginning. But how can we give what we do not have? And how can we offer what we cannot afford? And while the priests make their sacrifices in the temple year by year, and as the throbbing, pulsing reminder of our impurity breathes hot upon our necks, we want to cry out with Job in chapter 9, if only there were an arbiter between us that he could lay his hand on both of us. And that's what we need. We don't need another staircase to climb. We don't need another river to wash in. We don't need another law to keep. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. We need someone who can plead our case where we cannot in the presence of God Almighty without being consumed. We need someone who can lay his hand on humanity and someone who can take hold of God's holiness and can make a way for us to draw near to God despite our sin. We need a perfect priest who has no need to offer the blood of goats and bulls for himself before he considers our cause. We need a willing sacrifice, one with sinless human blood and infinite divine worth. We need the Lord himself to come in our stead and to cleanse us from all the impurities that our rituals could never touch. We need God Almighty in the flesh and in our place and on that cross that we deserve. And of that Savior, the law was a shadow. Pointing forward to the good things to come. Teaching us about the true form of these realities. Telling us about the one who has come to do God's will. And it is only through his offering that your sins can be forgiven. That's the witness of Scripture. Not guesswork of shaman and gurus, not someone who says, I think that maybe God is like this. God's very word breathed out by his very spirit through men whom he carried along through the ages, spoken out by his son. This is what you need. You need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to deal with your sins. The message that we hear is a message of Jesus unlike any priest before him, in the Holy of Holies, next to the Father, and sitting down. Have you ever considered that in all of the tables, and all of the lampstands, and all of the altars, and the bowls, and the basins, and the curtains, and the furniture, and all of the other pieces within the temple worship, the one piece of furniture missing is a chair? Because the priest had no need for it. Why would you sit when your job is never done? Who needs a place to rest when there's always another sacrifice, always another sacrifice, always another sacrifice to come? But this is how the Scriptures picture Jesus. He is seated. He's enthroned. At the right hand of God and in His presence, full of ever-living intercession for His children. Jesus is the priest and the mediator whose job is finished. He's the mediator who by a single sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being 
sanctified, and this is the sacrifice we need. It's the offering of Jesus Christ on the altar of God's justice. It wasn't offered up because he was guilty. You heard it three times from Pilate. It was the same words every time. I find no guilt in him. And even the Roman governor saw it. It wasn't given over because he was guilty. It wasn't given over because he was forced. Because we read here, behold, I come to do your will. And he tells us in John, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority from my Father to lay it down, and I have authority from my Father to lay it up. And so he wasn't guilty, and he wasn't forced. Jesus made this sacrifice because this is the way that he could do what Hebrews chapter 7 says. That he should save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That was what Good Friday was all about. It was allowing you to come close to God so that your sins could be forgiven and forgotten and carried away. It was so that you could draw near in full assurance of faith. The way that none of the Old Testament saints could. They came close and they looked to Christ and they, they trusted in what was to come and they had assurance in God's promises and yet they were kept outside. And the writer to the Hebrews says, He has opened a new and a living way into the holiest place where he has gone through the curtain that he has opened through his flesh and so let us draw near. That's what it's all been about. To allow you to draw near. So dear friends, the call tonight is to trust in the Savior that the law was pointing to. The call is to believe in the one who carries your iniquities. The call is to rejoice in the Lord who makes your sins forgettable. Join me in prayer. Gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son given up for us. Thank you that this is true of all of your elect whom you are sanctifying, whom you have set aside for yourself, that you have perfected your people for all time by a single offering. There is no need to continue in offerings and guilt. Those who have cast themselves upon Jesus Christ are fully welcome in your presence. They come in as Christ himself comes in. They come in with robes of his righteousness. They come in with your welcome. The inheritance laid up for the saints. They come in with their lives hid in Christ Jesus where he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. So, oh Lord, help us to believe in him and the promises that we find in the scriptures according to his name. Help us to trust in you, to receive eternal life, knowing you in Christ Jesus whom you have sent. Oh, prepare us for a Lord's Day worship on Sunday when we will again celebrate the glories of the resurrection and the truth of your care for your people. You do not leave us in the dust of death, but you are preparing a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, well-refined for all peoples, that day that you will take away the veil that is cast upon all the nations, and death will be swallowed up forever. O Lord, prepare us for that glorious day, not only tonight, not only on Sunday, but for that day that we will see him, and seeing him we shall be like him as he is, and we will be welcomed because of his sacrifice once for all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our final hymn tonight, number 252. Please stand as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, number 252.